0: This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Mohler, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. John Anazu is Sally D. Danforth, Distinguished Professor of Law and Religion and Professor of Political Science at Washington University in St. Louis. He's a well-known scholar in the area of First Amendment freedom. His specialization is dealing with the rights of speech, assembly, and religion. He also has written and lectured broadly on issues that include political and legal theory and many of the issues currently in the headlines of America's Public Conversation. In addition to his service at Washington University, he's also senior fellow at the Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture at the University of Virginia. He's widely sought in the major media and has been cited on CNN. He's also appeared in academic journals such as the Hedgehog Review. And, of course, he has published his own books, including his first book, Liberty's Refuge, The Forgotten Freedom of Assembly, which was published in 2012 by Yale University Press. His most recent book and the topic of our conversation today is Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference, published just this year by the University of Chicago Press. Professor John Anazu, welcome to Thinking in Public. Speaking right into some of the hottest controversies of the day, Professor John Inazu says, and I quote, the end of pluralism is a nightmare. Thus, he's written his book, Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference. I think it's a very important contribution to today's conversation, and I think intelligent Christians need to pay close attention to what Professor John Inazu is talking about here. Let me go back to that statement from earlier in your book, the end of
1: pluralism is a
0: nightmare. Why so, Professor?
1: Right. Well, Dr. Mueller, thanks so much for having me on your program, Uh, really for two reasons, because if we can't figure out how to live with the deep and real differences that divide us, we're faced with one of two options, and and the first is is anarchy and violence, and the other is kind of a totalitarianism or total control, a, a reigning of orthodoxy, and neither of those is very attractive from the perspective of most Americans.
0: Well, if you think about the the American experiment, uh, many thoughtful people have described it now, uh, especially in the period I would say after the Civil War to the present, as as something of a chartered pluralism. But uh, the pluralism that was spoken of, say a hundred years ago, is, is really dwarfed by the uh, the challenge of the of the reality of pluralism that we face today. Is it not?
1: Well, I think in some ways it is. I mean, so the, historically the the challenge and the opportunity of pluralism has really always been with us. So even at the at the founding, when in some ways the American public was much more homogenous, the denominational divides among Protestants were, were quite real, and, and the, the stakes were quite real. And so uh, early Americans figured out a way to live with a kind of difference between them. Uh, and then you're right, uh, post-Civil War, that became even more of a lived reality, and in some ways Uh, immigration trends and technological developments and um, moving patterns and all of these things have contributed to greater challenges and greater pressures on pluralism so that today the the scope of the pluralistic landscape I think is much more challenging and the reality of differences across uh, all kinds of religious beliefs and across racial identities uh, and across uh, really ideological uh, claims about truth, transcendence, and other important matters put a lot of pressure on a notion of coherence around pluralism today. You know,
0: the word pluralism itself has kind of an interesting history amongst uh, American evangelicals. You're making a very powerful argument for uh, claiming as a positive good the kind of pluralism that is that uh, agreed upon, ordered, chartered, respectful pluralism you describe as confident pluralism. But at the same time, there is uh, an evangelical rejection of a a theological pluralism uh, or kind of a a complete relativism or or universalism. And uh, I I think it's really important for Christians who often don't have to think in these terms to recognize that we actually are talking about two different issues in two different uh, arenas of thought. They certainly overlap, but uh, within the Christian Church, orthodoxy and heresy are essential issues of of clear and boundary definition. But in the larger society, going back to the period of the American founding, uh, there was the understanding that uh, that that this particular civilizational experiment, this uh, this this experiment in self government, would uh, would reflect from the beginning the understanding that uh, that everyone is free to come to the public square with all of his or her convictions intact and to be respected. that That's a different context.
1: I, I think that's exactly right, and it's a crucial distinction. So the, the political reality and the political experiment in pluralism is one that respects difference and is open to difference, uh, and there are, there are theological ideas about Uncoerced conscience, right, which fit right within a Baptist mold, among others. Sure. Uh, so it's very important uh, in terms of civil liberties to allow for this pluralism and difference. And there are arguments for pluralism that collapse into relativism, and I'm not I'm not interested in those arguments uh, as a Christian and as uh, someone who believes in, in claims about truth. That yeah. uh, the the political reality of pluralism has to make space for the possibility of truth claims to be part of that mix, and then those are going to have as you said, boundary-drawing consequences uh, for religious groups. But actually, when we think about it, every group, in order to have a kind of coherence to it, draws boundaries around its own orthodoxies. And so the broader principle is that in the political space, we recognize and allow for difference and freedom of conscience and variety. And then within institutions, religious or not, we allow uh, a kind of internal policing of norms. And, and that's the way that we sort of exist together in society.
0: And long before you wrote your latest book uh, on uh, confident pluralism, you've done some really important work on freedom of assembly um, as, uh, as kind of an overlooked essential civil liberty, because freedom of speech becomes, I won't say meaningless, but certainly is, uh, is undermined if there is not a freedom of association with those who are like-minded, and to define the group in those terms,
1: right. And what's really interesting about the, the First Amendment is it does not contain the right of association, as you as you said, it's the right of assembly. And when I when I wrote my first book on the right of assembly, I was I was fairly stunned to notice that very little attention had been played paid to this right that's in the text of the Constitution uh, that was there at the founding, and and we really kind of as a country had lost sight of what it was about or why it was even there. And so you have Free speech notions that sort of take over the First Amendment. You have a right of association that the Supreme Court recognizes in the 1960s, but doesn't really do much with. Uh, and you, so, collectively, you, you have a First Amendment architecture that misses out on really the essence of the right of assembly and why it was there in the first place.
0: You know, I want to add, test something with you as a professor of law and political science. It's a, it, it's a matter of, of tremendous interest to me when you look at the argument you make on pluralism. And uh, and and I I think you make the argument uh, honestly in kind of its classic form for us for conversation right now. The, but similar arguments were made. I think of uh, of an event uh, that that uh, that I observed uh, rather closely in, in terms of a document called the Williamsburg Charter. Now about twenty years old, which was in introducing to conservative American political life the the concepts of uh, of a chartered pluralism, and. Uh, I I just wonder, has this kind of conversation taken place on the political left? Um, Because you would think that uh, you you could well perhaps come up with a genealogy of of thinking about pluralism in which there would be very important contributions from the left. I've been looking for them. I really haven't found them yet.
1: Well, so I think – I think they are there, uh, certainly at the the level of theory. Folks like Bill, Bill Galston and William Conley and others have been writing uh, from the perspective of the left for a long time about the reality and the need for pluralism. And then what's interesting is we also have a historical reality, so that uh, particularly when we talk about constitutional protections around ideas of pluralism uh, and the, the protection of uh, minority viewpoints to dissent from state orthodoxies, those are the kinds of normative moves that throughout our American history have largely benefited what we would think of as progressive groups today, of abolitionists, of suffragists, right. of the gay rights movement in the 1970s. And so so the the historical example is very important to say, uh, On on the one hand, let's look what protections have been drawn upon in past times. And then you're right that there are some reflections on pluralism in more conservative religious circles today. The challenge, though, is... Uh, while those, while some of those conversations were happening a long time ago, it seems that a lot more of them are happening now. So the the obvious sort of retort from from the left would be, "Well, now you're suddenly interested in pluralism because you're you're not in power." And there, you know, there's some force to that argument in some ways. I think.
0: I think it's uh, it's, it's it's to our uh, credit if we honestly accept that as a, as a fact, uh, because even the the kind of conversation about chartered pluralism that took place. Uh, under uh, well conversation that included people like richard john newhouse and uh, and, and many others, uh, perhaps the sociologist Peter Berger, I can think of in that group it It was as they were recognizing a massive culture shift taking place I, I think it 's intellectually honest to say we don 't deal with some issues until we absolutely have to and uh, and now we have to
1: yeah and there 's some truth to that, although I think the the historical story is, is maybe brighter than that and maybe uh, more persuasive than that, and, and when you look at just the internal case of religious freedom, right there, the, the bright side of what we've done uh, in many cases with, with dissenting religious groups is to recognize the importance of religious freedom, even when those groups were not in power. So, so when we think about the ways the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Christian Scientists helped shape right. the First Amendment, or Catholics at some points in our history, and and those I think are success stories, and they're success stories precisely because those in power at the time recognized the importance of honoring dissent and arguments for pluralism. And so there's a a little more integrity to the arguments uh, when when we look at that history.
0: You know, considering the argument you make in your book, one thing, though, that uh, that does come to my mind is that uh, at least among Christians, I think the idea of religious liberty is probably a more salient idea uh, than the idea of pluralism. And uh, I, I think it's because we haven't had to think in these terms. So even most of the religious minority groups you mentioned were not threatening to the moral consensus uh, of, the, uh, of mainstream American culture I think uh, at, at that time. I think that's something that is markedly different now uh, because it is the change in that moral culture that has created the sense of urgency among conservative Christians or, or conservatives in America, I, I think, for good reason.
1: Well, I mean, may, I think yes and no, right? So when we think about the historical context in which uh, Catholics were arguing for religious freedom claims against a, a very dominant Protestant majority, Catholics were seen as, as, from that lens as very threatening to the moral order, right? Or in some of the cases, Mormons before them and others. And so I think actually in, in the context, there, there was this sense of uh, a moral threat. One, one shift that is, is real today and that is worth noting is that Uh, in those moral challenges across religions, there was still an overall acknowledgement of God and transcendence. And so the the shift away from that framework, I think, is is the more striking shift as opposed to moral versus not moral.
0: I think the front line of all of this, of course, is uh, the religious liberty front. And you deal with that from the very beginning. And as you introduce your book, you relate an anecdote from your experience in the classroom. And I think the anecdote is so important that I'm going to ask you to retell it here, Professor.
1: Sure. And and I'll stress, as you said, it was an anecdote. It was a classroom hypothetical. uh, And and I introduced the book with it in order to illustrate the point. Uh, But it is an important point. And so the the story revolves around a case that I teach, uh, Everson, which involves us. public funding for busing to private religious schools. This is the Supreme Court case that uh, recognized the Establishment Clause uh, being applicable to state and local ordinances. And so the question is, if you're okay under the Establishment Clause funding uh, buses through taxpayer dollars, are you then also okay funding Bibles and ministers in the classroom? And that's going to make some people quite uneasy. But on the other side, if you're not okay with the buses, then where do you draw the line? So if, if, if taxpayer money can't go to fund buses, then can it go to fund crossing guards to keep kids safe or those sorts of things? And so I press sort of both ends of the hypothetical in the class discussion, and I had one exchange with a student uh, where I raised the question, you know, if you have sort of a religious school that has a certain view of gender that's not in compliance with the reigning orthodoxy of the town can the town say we're not going to fund the crossing guards for the school uh, even even though we know the crossing guards are going to keep kids safe and so one of the students said well, well yes they can refuse to fund the guards because uh, the school has made a choice and so I pressed further and said well can the fire department refuse to answer uh, the call to put out a fire at the school and the student said yes the school has made a choice and we can't fund it or any provisions for it and then I asked about the SWAT team same answer uh, and the uh, the, what it illustrates, I think, is a logical matter is if, if, if state funding, because of the way that we all rely so much on state and public resources, if, if uh, the state funding argument is taken seriously, it can really go all the way. And you can say uh, as a logical matter that someone might just be outside the bounds of society. And I think that answer leaves all of us unsettled. Uh, and so then the question is, I hope so. right? And I, I think so, too. right? I think outside I of some hypotheticals, I would hope that most Americans would be deeply unsettled by that consequence. But if we are, then the hard questions are, uh, so how do we think about these lines and how do we think about what it means to live together uh, with people and with groups that we don't agree with, uh, but that we recognize are going to have to benefit from the shared resources of society nonetheless.
0: And it's not uh, perhaps uh, irrelevant that the Supreme Court will be hearing a case having to do with whether or not taxpayer money can go to pay for playground improvements uh, under uh, state funding for a church-based school. And uh, I think most of us probably don't care a great deal about the funding for the playground, but how the court decides on this could be of massive importance.
1: I think that's right. And I think these funding questions are very much tied into other questions about Uh, the scope of religious freedom and what really makes all of this hard is that the existing case law and the existing Supreme Court doctrine is just not that good when it comes to the free exercise of religion and protecting free exercise and this is really one of the points that I uh, try to make in the book and often make explicitly to Christian audiences is, uh, you know, you said just a, uh, a while ago that there's a certain salience of the idea of religious liberty to many Christians. I think that's right. I also think that Many Christians don't recognize how bad the law is in its present form when it comes to protecting religious freedoms. And so cases like the one you mentioned and others are important, uh, but they're also sort of swimming upstream at this point where we just have an overall constitutional framework that in many ways is is underprotective of religious freedom.
0: In a speech I believe she gave shortly after retiring from the U.S. Supreme Court, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor basically admitted that the court has been incoherent uh, in its religious liberty and church-state decisions, uh, and I don't know if she dated a beginning, but I would say at least incoherent since 1971 in the uh, the Lemon v. Kurtzman decision. Uh, the The decision you point to in your book, however, uh, I think absolutely rightly is most devastating, uh, is the Smith decision, and uh, can you kind of explain why that has uh, th- that has created so much uncertainty in terms of uh, our commitment to religious liberty as a people
1: sure and so if I can start on the incoherence point, I think the the broadly held critique about sort of incoherence of Supreme Court case law really applies mostly in the establishment clause context, where you mentioned the Lemon case and others, where the court just has not ever told us what kind of standards should be applicable in Establishment Clause cases where this line of separation is between church and state. In the free exercise context, the line is actually much clearer and much better understood. It's just not a very good line. Uh, And this traces back to the 1990 uh, decision in Employment Division against Smith where the the court uh, was assessing the free exercise claims of Native American spiritualists who – had used peyote and had been uh, been fired from their jobs and been denied job benefits. And I guess the the key takeaway from this case, which is still with us today, is that under the current understanding of the Free Exercise Clause, when a law is what's called a neutral law of general applicability, in other words, it applies broadly to religious and non-religious institutions or actors or behavior, when it's broadly applicable, the Free Exercise Clause does not have any heightened protections against that kind of law. So the takeaway here is if you have a law that specifically targets religion, you know, the state legislature says we are not going to allow uh, Presbyterians to appear in public, that kind of law is going to be struck down and receive lots of uh, constitutional scrutiny. But when you have a generally applicable law that says uh, there will be no drug use at all in this state, it's applicable to religious and non-religious people in different contexts, uh, then the fact that Native Americans might say, actually, peyote is important to our uh, worship service and our uh, essential religious activities, that kind of claim is not going to be recognized or granted an exemption or accommodation from the law. And that has tremendous effects for all kinds of religious belief, precisely because most of our laws are are generally applicable in neutral laws. uh, And all of the sort of... Uh, current and coming challenges are going to be generally applicable uh, in neutral laws.
0: This is also the place I think a lot of conservative Christians don't watch uh, legal developments and, in particular, the Supreme Court closely enough. And uh, so, for instance, the Smith decision about which we're speaking, that majority opinion was written by Justice Antonin Scalia, and uh, it, 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 it just reminds me that so many conservative Christians looking at that would say, well, when it comes to peyote use, clearly it was, uh, it was the right decision because they like the result of the decision. Uh, but the actual legal argument, the constitutional argument that Justice Scalia put forth in order to, to strike down the claims uh, coming uh, on the basis of, of free exercise of religion, uh, they're just devastating and have been virtually ever since 1990.
1: I think that's right, and it's why we have cases where you know, a Christian ministry meeting on a college campus for Bible study and prayer has no particular uh, protection under the Free Exercise Clause. It's why uh, colleges and universities, uh, Christian or other religious schools in California have no special protection against proposed legislation when it comes uh, to the Free Exercise Clause, and, and the, the consequences are, are pretty significant.
0: In reading Professor Anazu's book, Confident Pluralism, it is very clear that the issue of religious liberty looms large over the entire conversation. But religious liberty isn't the subject that reaches the title of the book. Instead, it's about pluralism. Indeed, it's about a confident pluralism. It's about something that is foundational when it comes to our experience and application of religious liberty. But it's also written in the background understanding that religious liberty is a concept that perhaps fewer and fewer Americans understand and certainly cherish. Professor Nasu, I think one of the most chilling sentences in your book, uh, or uh, uh, let's say paragraph, is when you write, The suggestion that religious liberty may fall outside of today's modest unity will no doubt unsettle many religious believers, yet it may be that legal protections for religious free exercise are less salient today than in earlier times. It may be that the free exercise of religion has moved from a right in which all citizens have a stake to a more limited right attractive to only a subset of citizens, end quote. Uh, When you wrote that, it was on the the other side of the Burgerfeld decision. And with a lot of these religious liberty issues now uh, now gaining in terms of both importance and velocity, uh, are we already at the point where— a massive number of Americans, perhaps even a majority, really just don't care that much about religious liberty?
1: I don't think it's near a majority yet. So I think there's still a sense in which if you ask people in general terms, is religious freedom important? Is religious liberty important? Most people will say yes. Even most uh, government officials will say yes. And we have it in a lot of speeches and and discourse still. Uh, But I, I think the the challenge is, how how does that remain a, a salient concept at the particulars and at the line drawing? And as fewer and fewer people recognize an immediate need for religious freedom in their own lives, there's going to be less of a connection to it. And this is an area where I find particularly in a lot of Christian audiences, there's almost an intuitive resistance to uh, what I'm actually just offering as a descriptive claim. I'm not trying to make a, a normative point here. I'm just saying look, this is the way it is for a lot of people in the world, and the response in a lot of Christian audiences is something like, well, religious liberty is a natural right. It can't be taken away from the state. It's a right given by God. Or alternatively, James Madison said it is the duty that we owe our creator before we owe the state and and those sorts of things. And, And I usually want to say you have to recognize that Someone, a lot of people today just don't care what James Madison said, or they don't care right. that you know you claim it's a natural right. If if they don't recognize the salience of the protection, then these sort of these arguments that depend on religious first premises are not going to have traction. And there's a there's a political and cultural reality to all of this, which is th- there is a, a tipping point at which at which uh, point people just stop caring enough to pursue the protections under these rights.
0: You know, both privately and publicly, uh, those who have both led and championed the uh, moral revolution we have experienced, uh, including those uh, fairly described as LGBT activists and others, uh, they're now basically saying, again, I say publicly and privately, that this is just uh, payback, that this is the fair uh, boomerang that uh, comes upon conservative Christians for failing to respect or advocate uh, moral pluralism, when they would claim we had the opportunity, and now that uh, now that we are on the other side of moral coercion, we're just going to have to deal with it.
1: And I think there's some legitimacy to, to those kinds of claims. And uh, you know, there are there were certainly loud and outspoken voices that were uh, rejecting claims to any kind of moral pluralism or difference uh, in an earlier era. And I, I think some people are uh, sensing. The turning of the tides, uh, and and I I think it's also important to distinguish sort of from a monolithic group out there that's opposed. So there, uh, you're you're right to name the reality of some activists who very much are uh, in opposition and trying very concretely and strategically to uh, you know make this hurt, and they're not they're not going away. And then I think there are people out there who are generally, genuinely open to different possibilities and the possibility of pluralism, even those who disagree with uh, the views that you or I or others might hold.
0: So if I were to anticipate what would be the, uh, the most uh, cogent criticism of your book in terms of its main theory and, and proposition, it would be this. You were overly confident of a pluralism that uh, that really has never existed and can never exist. So, yes, uh, the United States decided we could accept Utah as a state but, uh, and, and Mormons as neighbors, but only if they defined marriage as the union of a man and a woman, and that meant one man and one woman. And, uh, and so even now, as on the other side of the Obergefell decision, marriage has now been redefined as, uh, you know, to include same-sex couples, In reality, we haven't allowed, and currently by the edict of the Supreme Court, we do not allow any moral pluralism such that there could be, uh, well, uh, jurisdictions in the United States that would not recognize uh, same-sex couples as legally married. Uh, uh, Aren't there limits to this kind of pluralism simply because the society is going to define something as basic as what marriage is, and there are going to be winners and losers in this?
1: Well, there might be. I mean, so that that was a a Really complex and, and important question, and so to take it, uh, a couple of different pieces of it. On the one hand, that any society is always going to set some limits and some outer bounds, and we're always going to have some kind of line drawing. We're not going to permit the cult of human sacrifice under any circumstance, right? In contemporary American politics, and so we'll have those line drawing cases, and uh, and then the Supreme Court, as a nationalized kind of institution, and in some of its decision making, has as you suggested, imposed certain standards that in a different political imagination might have been worked out at state or local levels, but that's unlikely to be the case today. I think we still have a very important question remaining about uh, pluralism and institutional differences within civil society. So we have a, a, a recognition by the Supreme Court of a certain definition and cultural understanding of marriage applicable uh... at the state and governmental levels and now the very live question i think still to be worked out is Does that norm carry over to all spaces and spheres of society or do we allow for a kind of institutional difference uh... that that allows for differing views what one could imagine i suppose in uh... you know the late nineteenth century cases involving mormons and polygamy a system in which the government continued to say marriage is defined as a, a binary or a two-person relationship involving a man and a woman, but there there could be some religious understandings of polygamous marriage, and so you, you can you could see the possibility of coexistence of two different norms. It doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but I think the question is still on the table right now.
0: Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to find out if it is. I uh, I think often in terms of something like a series of concentric circles and. With the power of the bureaucratic state, the regulatory state as it now exists, it, it seems to me that the closer you get to the areas most under that kind of regulation, the force of moral coercion is going to be brought first and most forcefully there, and, and then it will move outwards. So it, it seems to me that the most vulnerable right now in terms of uh, of, of religious liberty being threatened right before our eyes – would be where institutions, for example, uh, educational institutions, a Christian college or university is dependent upon Title IV funding, uh, or uh, one is, uh, is in a profession in which licensure becomes a matter of state responsibility, and, uh, and, and thus they would argue a, a law that is generally applicable. Do you think that's where we're likely just in the, in the very short-term future to see some of the most interesting and perhaps ominous developments?
1: Well, it could be. Let me take a step back. I I think if we're sort of thinking about religious liberty as a broad category, there are actually even more significant and immediate threats right now, and most of them don't involve Christians. So there are ongoing threats to the religious liberty of American Muslims, for example, that in some ways are more particularized and concrete than any of the examples we're talking about. And it's important, right, to remember religious liberty to be meaningful is going to have to account for a broad kind of religious pluralism. And it means making those arguments and protecting those groups, even when they're not uh, Christian groups Uh, within the examples you're talking about, though, I, I think the institutional distinction is important. I think you're right to focus on questions of funding and also particularly funding applicable to institutions like educational institutions that are often outside of the formal control of churches. So under the current law right now, the, the most protected and the most, uh, Constitutionally, uh bene- benefited institutions are churches, and they will continue to be so uh, and so the more one moves outside of the institutional uh, core case of a church and the more public involvement there is, the more there are you know other non-believers or non-christians in the mix of those institutions, the harder it's going to be to maintain a kind of control or autonomy apart from the regulatory framework that you were describing.
0: You know, in terms of uh, what you rightly bring up as religious liberty threats experienced by our uh, Muslim neighbors, it is that primarily now uh, a matter of legal efforts to try to prevent the building of mosques? It, it seems to me that, uh, that, that the, the bigger issue there is probably – uh, something that many conservative Christians really aren't thinking very well about either, and uh, and that is the fact that uh, many of them are happy if a local zoning board decides to prevent a Muslim mosque from being built.
1: Right. No. And, and like you said, I, I read a lot of these stories as well and talk to people who who seem very concerned about the possibility of the mosque or who are very, sometimes even, supporting these kinds of zoning restrictions. That's an example, I think, where If we're going to be credible and serious about what it means to care for religious freedom, it has to be a recognition that other people are going to have to uh, be able to pursue their own religious norms. I think actually American Muslims have uh, even greater challenges in these zoning questions, though. And so when you think about the existential threats confronting some Muslim communities, there are concerns about national security. There are concerns about stereotyping beyond uh, individual people and communities, and these do lead to very real questions about law enforcement surveillance and even undercover infiltration and these sorts of things uh, and and you know that's not a that's not a direct challenge that many Christians are confronting or thinking about today, but it is a it is a very real challenge to the scope of religious freedom
0: and very complicated because in some cases there is uh, in a way that is not generally true of Christianity in the West there is uh, a certain national and ethnic uh, identity that is often mixed in with that religious identity. And, uh, you know, I think even uh, the wisdom of Solomon uh, would be tested sometimes to know exactly uh, how these issues are uh, are to be well understood, much less separated. In, in your book, you deal... I think, so well with the constitutional and legal issues. And uh, you know, frankly, I think it's, uh, it's, it's one of the best and most succinct introductions to those issues where they stand today. The second half of your book is more uh, about what uh, Robert Bella would call the habits of the heart. And uh, w- when you're talking about what makes uh, what makes this kind of pluralism Possible, much less confident. You're talking about certain moral habits that are themselves pretty endangered in American society today,
1: right? And uh, and I think it's going to take both. So it's going to take both a reformation of constitutional norms and laws, but also a reformation of our civic practices with one another and how we do these things. And and here in the book, I call them. I focus on tolerance humility and patience and I call them aspirations rather than habits or virtues because I, I I think that habits and virtues really require institutions and practices and traditions to sustain them and i'm I'm either not sure or skeptical that we have those institutions today uh, broadly throughout society and so at some point we're going to need them because aspirations cannot sustain indefinitely. Aspirations have to become habits or virtues in order to make this work in the long term. Uh, and maybe what I'm trying to do in the book is to say we need to have a, a recognition, and this is true for both Christians and, and those outside of the church, a recognition that these aspirations are needed, that we need to think about them collectively, and then we need to work really hard to uh, either create or sustain or rebuild the kinds of institutions that could form these uh, aspirations into practices. And, and that's, that's an urgent need, and I don't think we uh, pull off this confident pluralism without them.
0: You know, I couldn't help but hear the refrain of Sesame Street in those three terms in this sense. Um, don't be insulted. And, <laughs> uh, and, and that is that uh, one of these things is not like the other. And uh, that's, the, that's the word tolerance uh, here with humility and patience. And I think conservative Christians, uh, thoughtful and, uh, conservative Christians would say, you know, immediately I recognize uh, the aspirations of humility and patience because they're biblical after all. And uh, in that sense, more than aspirations for Christians— tolerance is such a difficult word. And so in reading your book, uh, I, I thought he really could have chosen a better word here. I didn't come up with any better word. And, and uh, l- let me just make that case a little bit further. So if you go back to the, the founding era, uh, really good work has been done on how the word tolerance was, uh, was rejected by, uh, by those who are constitutional framers because it didn't say enough. Uh, in other words, it wasn't – or someone like Roger Williams, a famous uh, uh, erstwhile Baptist uh, who, uh, who said, um, you know, tolerance is is, is not enough. It, it must be freedom, and, uh, and, and, and tolerance does not always lead to freedom. Then you come to someone like Her- Herbert Marcuse in the 1960s and 70s who ruined tolerance from the left – by calling for uh, intolerance toward anyone who wouldn't tolerate everything, uh, w- which is this totalitarian intolerance. I have to admit to you, Professor, I didn't come up with a better word, but I, I think you better explain your use of that word uh, for us to understand it more clearly.
1: Sure, yeah, and I'm, I'm really glad you focused on that, too. It's, it's interesting, when I talk to Christian audiences, uh, tolerance is the word that is raises the eyebrows. When I talk to non-Christian audiences, it's, it's humility, right? And And the Sort of a, a knee jerk reaction in some circles to the idea of humility. What, so, first, let me say what I'm trying to do with these three aspirations is suggest a kind of civic norm that a lot or hopefully a, a critical mass of American citizens can move toward, whether or not they're religious believers. And so, this is going to take a collective civic effort uh, that involves both those inside and outside of the church. And you're right that the word tolerance and toleration is an extremely complicated and contested term, particularly on, I would say, university and college campuses today. Uh, So what I I don't mean by tolerance sort of the idea that we fully accept and embrace and respect all viewpoints as either equally valid or totally permissible or harmless. And there's a sense, uh, particularly, uh, again, on college campuses today, a sense that it's not just enough to coexist, but you actually have to move toward and fully recognize, respect, and affirm my opposing viewpoint. Uh, and that's not what I mean. I, I think actually that's, that ends up being logically impossible to do and practically impossible when we talk about real people. So I, I think of tolerance more as a, a sort of practical enduring for the sake of coexisting with each other. And it's, it's, it's moving toward a kind of respect for the person that does not and sometimes will not translate into a respect for the ideas or the choices the person makes. Uh, and so it's a, it's a kind of capacious concept, but it, it does not require uh, a compromise of, of truth or a compromise of conviction. Uh, and and part of, part of the reason I think that Christians can pull off this idea of tolerance is uh, if we are serious about the confidence we have in our own faith, then we need not feel threatened by moving into spaces and conversations with other people who share very different worldviews, and, and, and the, the tolerance that can lead to common ground and coexistence is, is what I'm talking about in the book.
0: As we come to a close, I'm going to ask you to extend that thought just a bit, because it, it seems to me that morally and, uh, well, urgently, uh, one of the most important questions we can ask is, how can Christians, convictional Christians, contribute in the best way possible uh, toward the goal you're talking about here of a confident pluralism. Uh, we, we're kind of dependent on uh, on how others are going to respond for the other side of the equation. But speaking to Christians, how can we most uh, helpfully contribute to this?
1: And so for Christians, I think it starts with an ultimate confidence and hope in the gospel and our understanding of how we live out our witness to the gospel in the world around us. And I think that is always moving toward uh, people who are vulnerable, who are estranged, who are hurting, uh, and we're called to do that sort of irrespective of how they respond to those efforts. And so that means moving into spaces and places that might feel risky or uncertain. And that doesn't mean – not, it's not sort of a full license to go anywhere and to throw off the, um, the, the constraints and, and to lose discernment. I think it's always important to discern what – alliances one is making but I do think that a riskier kind of partnership for the sake of finding common ground making both individual and institutional efforts to partner with other people and and in that partnership to recognize this doesn't mean we embrace or agree with everything this other person or institution stands for that's going to be unlikely to impossible but it does mean that we can work really hard to find where we have common ground and to work toward common efforts, and that uh, that very practically solves problems, but it also demonstrates to those around us that we're not a closed-off people who are uh, applying purity tests to every uh, relationship and partnership in which we enter, but it's, it's saying that confident in who we are as Christians and as the church and as the people of God that we can be uh, in the world around us and uh, moving toward healing and hope and, and joy in, in the world we see. And that that's true. Regardless of the legal challenges that come or don't come, it's it's true regardless of the cultural response we encounter. It's, I think, sort of what we're called to do uh, in spite of the circumstances.
0: Doesn't it also come down to personal relationships or sometimes the absence of those relationships? Uh, I, at least I think one of the the uh, powerful implications of your book is that we ought to be in some kind of intentional conversation and respectful relatedness with people who do differ from us in, uh, in some of the deepest ways.
1: Oh, absolutely, and I think that's true in both directions. I am in a lot of very secularized, elite circles where it's clear to me that many people I encounter have never met someone who actually believes in the claims of Christ, uh, and so they just have, they're left with a stereotype of what a Christian is. And then in the other direction, I'm in a lot of Christian circles where it's it's clear or, or almost clear to me that that many people have never Uh, befriended someone who was an atheist or uh, of another faith or a Muslim. And uh, so they are left with stereotypes of what those people are. And I think it turns out, and again, this is not to move toward relativism in any way, but it is to say that there is a common humanity uh, that we recognize, that people are created in the image of God, whoever they are, and that uh, in moving toward actual relationships, we can get to know uh, those people as human beings first and then work to move toward understanding the differences that we have.
0: Can you tell me what your next project is? Are you already, uh, as I would guess, at work on, uh, on on your next major work? Well, we're
1: always thinking about the next thing, right? I, I, I think, actually, that I want to start to think through the specific applications of this idea of confident pluralism, and the need for these both constitutional and civic practices, Uh, in the particular setting of the university, which right now seems like such a hotbed for so many of the issues that you and I have been discussing. But also, uh, I think the kind of place, uh, if there is a place where we ought to be able to work this out, the kind of setting where people from lots of different backgrounds, different parts of the country and the world, different belief systems come together, have an extended period of time, often live in close quarters and have structured conversations around things that matter. And if if we can pull that off in the university, uh, I think we have a way to model a kind of behavior and engagement that is applicable in other settings. And if we can't pull it off in the university, of all places, then I think we're really in trouble.
0: The book is Confident Pluralism, Surviving and Thriving Through Deep Difference, and its author is Professor John D. Inazu. Professor Inazu, thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Dr. Muller, thanks so much for having me. enjoyed that conversation with Professor John Inazu, and I found his book, Confident Pluralism, to be a really important read for 2016. I think it's going to have a shelf life far beyond this because of two reasons. In the first place, his taxonomy and historical understanding of our constitutional order on this very question of pluralism, and in particular the question of religious liberty, is really important. I think it will stand the test of time. I think he sets many mythologies straight, and I think he also provides some really essential documentation concerning where we are as of 2016 on these questions. But I think it's going to have a longer shelf life and public conversation for another reason. I think it's really significant that here you have a very qualified academic scholar who is writing on the issue of confident pluralism in a way that is clearly scholarly and will speak directly to the academic audience, but also has a broad very practical application in terms of America's public life. I think that's a rare combination, and one of the deficits we suffer from in America's current cultural moment is that there are too few who are able to bridge the divide between a truly authentic academic argument and its practical application. And for that reason, I'm very glad this book appeared, and it appeared when it appeared. Right now, in 2016, as we find ourselves confronting so many frontline, unavoidable issues, and when we detect the fact that religious liberty is losing and not at this point gaining traction in American society, there are fundamental questions that we have to address, fundamental questions we have to ask. And as was made clear in this conversation, some fundamental questions we had better ask ourselves. One question I want to ask is whether we can be so confident of this confident pluralism. But when you look at the title, it's clear that he's talking about a pluralism that is itself confident. He's not necessarily talking about the confidence of everyone who may be trying to contribute to this confident pluralism. Confidence is both, in this sense, a modifier of what this kind of pluralism would mean and an attitudinal issue for all of us to consider as we enter into this endeavor. Or if I could put it another way, I am not so confident that this ideal of confident pluralism will be as widely as embraced as I would hope it would be. But I am confident that this kind of confident pluralism is exactly the kind of mode of public engagement that is called for, not only in this time, but should have been affirmed in times past as well. The arguments made in this book by Professor John Inazu, I can only hope, will grow in influence and persuasive power. And I can only hope that we will discuss these issues as Christians, even including and especially those issues that reflect the deepest level of difference. I hope we can talk about these things in the public square in a mode that genuinely is confident. Not confident, however, in pluralism, but able to engage in confident pluralism because of our confidence in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks again to my guest, Professor John Anazu, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boyscollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.